please feel most welcome to raise whatever questions you have. Uh, I've put a lot of words into the air today, so anything that needs clarifying, don't be shy. Please ask away. Uh, the gentleman in the blue scarf at the back. In the inquiry that we've been doing, there are moments of recognition of something out of our usual conditioned response, I guess I could say. So there's moments of recognition, and then there's always a tendency to try and uh, categorize or flavor or identify what that moment is, um, which is a kind of seems like a dog in its tail kind of thing, which doesn't really go anywhere. In fact, sometimes uh, is more distracting. Um, is it because that state or that recognition is not recognizable through the five senses? The short answer, yes. The, um, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that uh, the way that... Uh, you phrased it like the mind always is looking for some kind of categorization. I would say it's not always. That's why there's the possibility of, <laughs> of freedom from that. That uh, it's not just you, but I mean, all of us, we, we tell ourselves these stories. Like I used to say, I'm always anxious. And, and uh, I was a very, I had a lot of anxiety <laughs> as a... So substantial part of my daily experience and so my habit was to say I'm always anxious and then um, many years ago in the late 80s, early 90s then uh, uh, when Ajahn Sumedha was teaching he pointed this out, not just to me but to everyone uh, at Amaravati yeah. we, we tell ourselves these stories like I'm always angry I'm, really, I'm, I'm, I'm so jealous, I'm jealous all the time or, I'm, I'm always nervous, I'm anxious and he said, no, you're not. <laughs> it might be that anger comes and goes quite regularly, or jealousy comes and goes quite regularly, or anxiety comes and goes quite regularly, but it's not a, there all the time. That's why liberation is possible. If it was there all the time, then the game would be over, <laughs> if you like. So I would say uh, the first thing to flag would be that kind of way of talking about it. Um, say, well, uh, the mind very regularly... <laughs> complicates and tries to commentate and and, and categorize um, but that categorizing uh, uh, arises and passes away and because our, um, our normal sensory experience uh, as I've been saying in these last few days uh, it's based upon time identity location um, causality uh, and so this is our kind of normal reality so when we're trying to describe that which is beyond cause and effect, that which is timeless, that which is unlocated and, not, uh, and non, non-personal, <laughs> there, literally there is not the language or the concepts to describe that. So uh, that's why the words run out. It was kind of interesting that the words sort of weren't there at the beginning. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so that uh, I feel part of the genius of the Buddha, uh, immediately after his enlightenment, his first thought was, there's no way to explain this. So his first thought was not even to try explaining it to anybody. Um, 
and then the, uh, immediately after the enlightenment, after he had been persuaded by the Brahma deity Sahampati, as I was saying uh, a while ago, then he was making his way to um, Varanasi from Bodhgaya um, to reconnect with his five companions. Uh, along the way, he met another wanderer called Upaka. And, uh, and Ajahn Sumedha would often say, you know, actually the first Dhamma talk of the Buddhas was a failure. We talk about the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel, as the first teaching. He said, actually it wasn't. It was his conversation with Upaka. And so along the road, then he meets Upaka, and Upaka says, basically, wow, you know, who are you? you know, you're so bright, you're so peaceful, you're so radiant, you're so serene. And, and the Buddha was seemingly about two meters tall. He was, a, 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 he was very physically uh, impressive, kind of large, imposing figure, physically. And... Uh, and so the Upaka thought, wow, this is this person, they've, what have you understood? You've got some kind of great realization. You're so radiant, you're so peaceful, so serene. What is it that you've discovered? Um, uh, who is your teacher? You know, what kind of practice have you done to arrive at this kind of brightness and clarity and, and peacefulness? And the Buddha said, um, I have no teacher. I, I'm the only enlightened being in the world. Um, I'm a fully awakened one. And then Upaka says, oh, uh, oh really? Yeah. So from what you're saying, you've, you've realized the deathless. The Buddha said, yes, I have. And now I, I'm on my way to, to Varanasi, to Kasi's city, to beat the drum of deathlessness. Um, and so, uh, so Upaka says, well, good for you, friend. <laughs> and then shaking his head, went off by a different path. So, uh, and so Ajahn Sumedha would often say that was, so the first teaching didn't work, <laughs> it was not effective, it didn't arouse faith in, uh, the, uh, in his inquirer. And uh, so he learned quickly, sort of declaration of, you know, I am the ultimate reality. So that didn't work. So, <laughs> so uh, from the second Dhamma talk, the, the, the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the turning of the wheel, where he outlined the middle way and the Four Noble Truths, then he had already figured out um, declaring that the, the goal has been realized or trying to describe the nature of the goal, that's not going to work. So let's just focus on the path to that goal instead. And that basically laid out, apart from a few statements like I read earlier today about the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, those statements are a minority. 99% of the Pali Canon is the path to realizing the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. So uh, the vast majority of his, uh, of his teaching focuses on the path to the realization of that and let, letting the realization itself be wordless or, or uh, undescribed. In, in a dialogue that he had with a young Brahmin student um, called um, uh, Sivaka, uh, Sivaka asks, uh, so what... What is the nature of an enlightened being at the end of their life after they've passed away? You know, what happens to them? Do they disappear altogether? Are they, are they, uh, do they no longer exist, or are they, uh, do they uh, reappear in some kind of transcendent state? Uh, and the Buddha then responds um, uh, to him that, uh, by saying, um, "One who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which can be spoken of is no more." You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes are 
of being, uh, uh, all phenomena have been removed, all means of speaking have gone too. So, it's that, so th this is where the words run out. <laughs> Across this border, that currency is not valid. You know, you, no, you, you can't exchange it. <laughs> uh, and so he was remarkably clear on that. So um, the, the, the teachings that are, we're sort of focusing on this week about letting go of self-view and conceit is, in a way, how to get to that border <laughs> and to bring about that change of attitude, the change of heart, that uh, helps that which is, quote-unquote, the other side of the border, the, the, which we can say is the, the unborn, the unoriginated, or, or the realization of Nibbāna, uh, how that can be realized, how that can be known directly. In other Buddhist schools there's a lot, uh, and philosophical traditions, there's uh, a bit more of a of um, languaging about qualities of a transcendent state or, or these sort of domains um, uh, but uh, in the in the Pali uh, canon in the southern Buddhist world it's really uh, most of the focus is is how to get to the border and <laughs> having your papers ready to get it to get to, to get across as it were all analogies are only partially accurate but that, uh, that's good enough I think yes just a brief comment. I think the talk that you gave earlier was fine blowing. No pun intended, you know. I think it really, it was really this. But a uh, couple of, uh, I guess, questions here. If I were to just summarize, you know, for my sake, and uh, put it in an instruction, so that before I sit down every day, I say this to myself and instruct. If I were to say, what am I at this present time? Is that a good instruction to carry with me when I sit down for meditation? I just wanted to add the phrase, at this present time, because that is something that keeps changing. Uh, yeah, a short answer, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, as I was saying earlier, I uh, greatly encourage people to experiment. I also encourage people to, to find your own language uh, for things, to the phraseology, um, and to... Because every, we're all different. <laughs> Again, we're all very different. So one particular form, form, uh, formulation of words for one person will be, yes, that, that's what turns the key. And for another person it's like, eh. And so finding your own languaging for bringing about that kind of perspective is, is great. I think. So I encourage people to experiment and explore and see what... Uh, what really works to bring about that shift of view. Uh, one other question, uh, where can we find you know, information, resources, where we can learn more about it? I will, you have written books, there are, I'm sure there are resources online. So if you could maybe through Praveen or just over here, you know, share those, that information, so some of us can go and delve. Yes. Uh, well, uh, the, the Dhamma talks from uh, Venerable Master Shu Yun, they're in the uh, books Chan and Zen Training, uh, written by Charles Luke, L-U-K, uh, also known as Luke Kuan Yu, published by Ryder. At least they were. Uh, uh, they've probably been... I mean, they were around in, in the mid-'60s, so they've probably been republished by other people. Probably Motilal Baranasi Das <laughs> has an, almost certainly has an edition. <laughs> um, and uh, so... 
you can find those teachings there. Also, there's a, 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 an organization based in Taiwan called the Body of the Buddha Educational Foundation, and they, they produced a smaller edition of just of those Dhamma talks of Master Shu Yun, and those are for free distribution. The edu- uh, uh, the, so that's in Taiwan. And uh, I would probably ask Praveen to just put everything together and just send it out. But uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll find it. Can, yes. Yeah. Uh, but there are also books and uh, resources, I mean, that you have. Uh, yes, uh, well, there's um, uh, a couple of, of references that um, I gave just before the retreat. Because... Uh, uh, I didn't want this to be solely a study session, so rather than having here is your required reading, <laughs> uh, there, I, I did uh, look, at a, uh, look out a couple of uh, items. One is a, um, a book of mine that's called Roots and Currents, and there's a chapter in there called The View from the Center, which is about uh, Arahant and Bodhisattva and the way that people create arguments between those two principles. So the view from the center. And there's a section of that called uh, self-view, the reliable troublemaker. So that's, that's one section of that. Uh, it was like a, an article that I wrote called The View from the Center. And then uh, in another book, uh, in a similar format, called The Breakthrough, there's uh, a chapter there called the uh, I, the eye-making, mind-making mind. And so there's quite a lot of this related material you'll find in various different um, patterns in there. Also, um, uh, Ajahn Sumedho's book, Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless, which, is, which was published about 1983, 84. Uh, there's a lot of extremely helpful material in there yes John my question is uh, so in the context of practice of stream entry uh, and understanding self view uh, so as to let it go uh, and say one, un- one understands that uh, uh, that identities are not real and they are just roles that we play uh, one understands that body is not I, me, myself, um, it, it just needs to be taken care of. One understands we are conditional and so on. Uh, but there is this feeling of I know, I understands, mm-hmm. which uh, I understand we call it as a asmimana. Mm-hmm. So what I want to understand is that uh, as long as practice of stream entry is considered, that's fine, right? Like I know, I understand. So. Yeah, uh, uh, that uh, I mean, uh, it's uh, of stream entry. You know, sense, desire, and ill will don't end with stream entry. So you, uh, you know, as a stream entry, you can as stream enters can still get angry, <laughs> can still have aversion, get irritated with the people. So that um, and so that I feeling can be around, but that but even as those those emotions arise, then uh, there's a, a high degree of mindfulness and wisdom that would know what that is. But, um, and uh, the, the second level, the, the once-returner, then sense, desire, and ill will are reduced. But even, even at that level, they're still around. 
So that sense of I, the experiencer, I, the one who's meditating and so on, that, that is uh, going to arise. But again, with, that, with a, a high level of mindfulness and wisdom, there's going to be the recognition of this is asmimana, this is, this is the, that I feeling ar- arising. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's there, but it's known. <laughs> And so, uh, as we know, you can be aware of a habit, but does, you know, like if you want to give up smoking, you can know, I want to give up smoking, but you can still want a cigarette, right? I mean, I don't know if you do, want to, if you do smoke, but uh, that uh, you can be aware that, um, that, yes, you're not interested in following that, but still, like, oh, I need a smoke feeling can arise. That, uh, just because you, the, the mind says, I want to stop smoking, it doesn't immediately take all desire for, for nicotine to go away. But you can, when that uh, desire arises, you can recognize, oh, that's that desire for a smoke again. Uh, it's there, but you know what it is, and there's no interest in following it, but <laughs> that, that impulse ar- arises. So that, um, and the, the more that the, the path is developed, as it were, um, the more clarity there is, then the more those, those movements or those, those, those mental formations are more quickly and more fully they are seen as empty and insubstantial. So uh, the way I understand is just knowing is not like, uh, is not letting go basically. Just knowing like uh, how, how, how I understand is just knowing that I know it is not necessarily letting go of it. Um, well, it, it depends on the, the individual. I mean, the, 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 there's a knowing as in cognizing like there is this, this feeling, and I'm feeling it. Or there can be a, a much more profound and comprehensive knowing. It's, it's not just like a one-dimensional or one, uh, uh, one quality. There can be the, the the knowing which is just cognizing the the the, the appearance of that particular feeling, and there can be a, a, a various sort of levels of. of um, of, under, of understanding and the, the, the mind not giving it substantiality or not making uh, the self around it. Does that make sense? A little bit, but if, <laughs> if, if we talk so about self-view, mm-hmm. uh, so what would be like just know, knowing that there is a self-view and what would be like letting go or, you know, abandoning? Well, if it's if it's the, the knowing which is um, the quality of vicha that is uh, un, uh, that is unaffected by um, attachment of any kind, then that's the same as letting go. But if it's just cognizing, like you know, I want more, you know, I want more cake. <laughs> you can be like, you know, even as you're, you're kind of strongly pulled by that. Yeah, you you know, there's a feeling. I want more cake, um, and it, yes, it's being cognized, but it's not being let go of. You know, that's still having an effect because it's cognizing is not the same as knowing with full uh, mindfulness and awareness. So, like. Uh, that cognition, uh, that uh, attention, manasikara, or ordinary sort of um, basic level mindfulness, sati, is kind of cognizing a, an event or cognizing a feeling or an experience. But 
that's only a, a kind of mechanistic or rudimentary kind of mindfulness or attention. That if that's developed, then the next level is, say, mindfulness and, and full awareness, sati sampajanya, so that then there's a more, uh, say, uh, full uh, 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 recognition of that quality, that, that feeling, that impulse. Um, and recognizing the context of well, uh, yeah, I've already uh, I've already had my meal and my stomach is quite full. So that impulse of you know I want more of that, you know that that's natural to arise, but I'm not interested in in following it. So the, the whole kind of working with it, the if you like the the kind of highest level of mindfulness then would be mindfulness and wisdom satipanya which I would call like a, a holistic mindfulness or a complete mindfulness. So e- even as that, uh, that impulse arises, or well, I like some more, uh, and even as it takes shape, um, then the mind knows, oh, that's just an impulse. It doesn't need to be followed. There's, no, n- there's nothing behind it. Um, it's, it's let go of completely. It has no value, no substance. So there's these different levels of, of mindfulness. Now, Ajahn Chah used to compare it like, the rudimentary or mechanistic mindfulness, sati on its own, is just like the hand that goes and takes hold of an object. The sati sampajanya is like the arm that moves the hand to the place where it needs to go to, to pick up the object. And satipanya is like the body that the, the arm and the hand are connected to. <laughs> and so that uh, that uh, is one, you know, one way of recognizing that. So just cognizing a feeling and being aware that you know I, I dislike that or I want that or I'm afraid of that that you can cognize something you can you can be aware of it but there can still be all kinds of attachment <laughs> and identification involved so that you know that there's a big range really between that sort of mechanistic uh, mindfulness and there is even kinds of michas michasati you know wrong mindfulness so it's still mindfulness but it's uh, it's based on on things that are unwholesome, like I was saying, the, the kind of concentration you have when you're cracking a safe, or or if you're a sniper, you know, that uh, if you are aiming at the target <laughs> and uh, you do want to shoot that person, that uh, you, there can be a lot of mindfulness, uh, but it's it's devoid of connection to morality. So that the more that it's in the realm of uh, any kind of Sati that is in tune with Dhamma, the basic Sati, which is Samasati, you know, right mindfulness, there will be an element of moral distinction. This is wholesome, that is unwholesome, that'll be in the picture. If it's Micha Sati, it's kind of <laughs> the, the other side of the fence, it's still mindfulness, there's still, you can pay close attention to your job as a, as a bank robber or as a sniper or, or a, uh, whatever. Uh, but you know, you know, you're, you're, you, there is a, a, a mindfulness, but there, it's cut off from the whole moral element. So it would be called micha. Micha means wrong or, or uh, unskillful or, or bad, kind of uh, against uh, against dhamma, against reality. Sama means in tune. Micha means out of tune. Yes, the gentleman at the back. In the discourse of the characteristic of. Uh, Self. Mm-hmm. With the fi- fading of patience, a hurt, hurt was liberated. After come uh, knowledge. Yeah? Previous disenchantment with the forms, feelings, perceptions, and mental formations. 
Um, I want to like to know uh, more about this process and in this reality and in the process uh, or stage between uh, born and dead because the 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 heart of the because was liberated mm -hmm. of passion uh, before Buddha yes talk with with him about the uh, forms, um, mental formation, feelings, yeah? but uh, they fading their their passions and was liberated. <laughs> well, I would like to know more more about this process here in this reality and in the between process, <laughs> the stage uh, between born and death, between birth and death. <laughs> Well, if, I, if I'm understanding your question, this is referring to that passage, particularly at the end of the Discourse on Not-Self, page 127, when it's describing that the um, seeing in this way because the wise, noble disciple becomes disenchanted with form, becomes disenchanted with feeling, perception, and mental formations, becomes dis disenchanted with consciousness. Becoming disenchanted, their passions fade away. With the fading of passion, the heart is liberated. With liberation there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. And they know, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived, lived out, done what is had to be done, there is no more coming into any state of being. Thus spoke the Blessed One, delighted that the group of five bhikkhus rejoiced in what the Lord had said. Moreover, while this discourse was being delivered, the minds of the five bhikkhus were freed from the defilements through clinging no more. So that's a, the passage you're referring to. So there, there's uh, quite a bit there. So the, um, um, the, uh, uh, when there is uh, uh, insight into the way things are, where, what they call uh, vipassana, insight, or another long Pali word is yatabhutang nyanadasanang, knowledge and vision of the way things are, then that, uh, that recognition that the, all, all phenomena, all uh, aspects of the experiential field arise and pass away, they're, they're unsatisfactory, they're not self, they're empty of substance. So then uh, the, the natural um, result of that is uh, dispassion or disenchantment. So the, the, um, the word uh, viraga uh, is used for dispassion. Raga, the Pali word, um, sometimes translated as desire, more often passion. It's related to the English word rage, which gives you a sense it's, kind of, it's hot. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's a kind of engagement with, with the field of experience that is hot, which is agitated, which has got uh, personal qualities woven in with it. So raga um, is that rage or that passion. Viraga, uh, in this instance, it means without or, or not, uh, not raging. <laughs> it's interesting, and this is, a, this is an aside, Viagra is an anagram of viraga. And I've got this suspicion that somebody in the naming department of Pfizer thought had, got a, had a bright idea. Like, I know what we can call this, <laughs> this, this, uh, this new drug. Let's call it uh, 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 Viagra. So it's a, a way of flipping the letters around from Viraga. 
Probably not, but possibly that the, somebody working, anyone working for Pfizer might think, oh, yeah, how did you know? <laughs> so, uh, so virago is often translated as, as um, uh, dispassion, disenchantment, the, um, the nibindati is the word that's translated as disenchantment. So, like nibbana means coolness. Nibindati is becoming cool in relationship to something. So it's that uh, no longer heated around that, that seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So nibida is a, a coolness. So disenchantment is is one way of describing that becoming cool in relationship to that, like not stirred up by, not carried away by. So it's not a dismissal or an aversion, but just not excited by or not carried away by. Um, so that um, nibida is that coolness. And then nibidang virajati viraga vimuchati vimutasming, uh, becoming disenchanted, their passions fade away, viraga. Uh, with the fading of passion, the heart is liberated, vimuchati. So vimuti is liberation. Um, so that then that, that fading of, of passion, that coolness arising and dispassion, the kind of, it's really describing that letting go. And then that letting go of attachment to the, the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, then that letting go brings freedom, vimuti. Uh, vimutasming, vimutamiti, nyanang, hoti. Um, when the heart is liberated, uh, with liberation that comes the knowledge, it is liberated. Vimutang, iti, nyanang, hoti. So there's that recognition of that when the heart is liberated, yeah, this is freedom. And then the holy life has been lived. The work of, of spiritual practice has, has been reached. The, 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 the path that had been followed has, has been followed to its ending, to the, the cessation of suffering, to complete liberation, to, uh, to Nibbana. And then... Um, so that as the Buddha was giving this teaching, that his, all his five companions became arahants. In the first teaching, as I mentioned earlier, Kandanya reached the level of stream entry, and the other four were still not, not quite there yet. But in the second discourse, uh, the uh, discourse on not-self, then all five realized full and complete enlightenment. And in, in the, the sort of root text of this, it then says, and then there were six arahants in the world, you know, the Buddha and then the five, his five companions, and they, they keep a, a kind of running total through that section of the, the scriptures. So uh, uh, the other part of your question is what? See, the, the same process, uh, the disattachment, um, or focus the attention on be able to handle the attention, attention in the um, between process. Because these teachings were in this reality, in this realm. Mm -hmm. But there, in the other process, in the stage in between death and birth. Yes, and in this process, um, the attention maybe the, is without our handle sometimes. Mm -hmm. The there's, there's different ways of approaching it. It's, it's a good question. Uh, again, 
The tr our trusty and indefatigable inquirer, Vachugota, asks the Buddha this question. Yeah. Wh uh, what sustains, when one life comes to an end and before the next life begins, what sustains a being or how is a being sustained? So th there's many dialogues between Vachugota and, and the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha says, if there's a forest fire, when the flames leap from one tree to another, the flames are fueled by the air the fuel, and the word, interestingly, the word for fuel is upadana, which is exactly the same word as for clinging. Uh, and so he said the fuel uh, uh, for the flame as it leaps from one tree to another is the air, the vayo, the, the wind. Uh, when a being has died, uh, one life has come to an end, and before the, uh, uh, the next life has begun, what holds a, a being kind of together, uh, quote-unquote, is, he says, is craving, tanupadana. Craving is what sustains a being when one life comes to an end and uh, before the next life begins. So when people ask, you know, if all dhammas are not self, what, you know, <laughs> what is it that carries on from one life to another? And the short answer is habits. <laughs> habits, you know, the things that we love, things that we hate, things that we are familiar with, uh, Whatever the mind is attached to, the, the subtle and coarse kinds of craving, that's the fuel that sustains a being. And so with enlightenment, uh, when he says uh, the birth is ended, the holy life has been lived out, there's no more coming into any state of being. If there's no fuel, there's no tanha, then uh, that process of, of rebirth has come to an end. And then going back to upasiva, Sorry, I remember the name incorrectly. I said Sivaka. Its name is Upasiva. The question of Upasiva, you know, what happens to an enlightened being at the death of the body? The Buddha says, uh, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. The, that which can be spoken of is no more. We can speak of the five khandhas, <laughs> but that which is outside the five khandhas, uh, yeah, then you know, language falls apart at that point. So the Buddha is quite resolute, and he's asked that question quite a number of times, and other, uh, other uh, Sangha members are asked, and it's always the same kind of a reply, is that, uh, yeah, that uh, nothing can be spoken of, uh, even though they say, well, it must be something wonderful if they've, they've reached the fulfillment of the spiritual path. They must go to some really, really, really nice place. And they say, no, 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 no. They doesn't apply, place doesn't apply, going doesn't apply. Like, <laughs> all, all, all the usual reference points don't apply anymore. So it's, it's frustrating to the thinking mind, but in terms of, of the practice, then that quality of timelessness, unlocatedness, selflessness, in moments of clarity, in moments of insight, those qualities uh, can be known directly, I would say. So, so yeah. did you come from Spain, especially for this retreat? That's a long way to come. I came from South America, from Chile. From Chile? Yes. That's a long way to come. <laughs> I hope it's being worthwhile. <laughs> I was just in Spain recently. I was curious. I'm just wondering on the topic of climate change. Again, it's... It, somewhat similar to the question yesterday in the sense that it's holding these parallel realities, a conventional reality where um, the scientific likelihood is of 
you know, a very, very, very bad situation um, in the not-too-distant future. And then, obviously, working on, uh, you know, no self. And how best to relate to such an overwhelming reality that's uh, likely to lead to huge amounts of suffering, certainly pain and likely suffering. Yeah, so that's... Well, it's a very good question. You're not the first person to to raise that, obviously. Uh, but uh, I see that there's a couple of different things. One is um, internally, in terms of our attitude, uh, and I would say that a lot of what we've been looking at over the last couple of days, um, we've only been here just, uh, just over two days, so even though we've <laughs> packed a lot into it. Uh, so that the... Uh, um, that uh, letting go of self-centered uh, perspectives, it, uh, and particularly freeing ourselves from anger, from anxiety, um, and so sort of compulsive compassion, um, then we're able to uh, function much more effectively or, or in, in our own inner world, even in a very difficult situation, um, then we can see that we are able to function much more peacefully, effectively, and see what, what is useful to do, what is useful to not do, uh, in terms of, of action. And so we're more at home in our own being. And then um, in the, the, our own conduct, then to, um, to be doing what we can in, in our own individual choices um, to reduce the causes of... Uh, destructive climate change and to contribute to be as much a part of the solution uh, as we can and as little as a part of the problem as we can. And I, I realize there's a vast spectrum of opinions about what's useful to do and what's useful to not do and say, well, the real thing is this, or no, no the real problem is over there. Um, and uh, if, uh, if one is engaging in those debates or if you're working in that kind of a field, the capacity to listen, the capacity to weigh up different, um, say, uh, opinions, pieces of information, scientific data, and so on and so forth, um, and then to to not try and uh, again, if we approach things from a very idealistic position and trying to do everything, we end up being burnt out and and we're kind of unable to do anything. And I lived on the west coast of America a long time in California and particularly in Berkeley, uh, there was uh, a local phenomenon called compassion fatigue, which was very common. People trying to do so many things, trying so sincere, trying so hard to help in so many areas, they would just burn out or, or, or just get completely alienated from their own family. And they'd, they'd say, you have their, their teenage kids saying, you know, hello, mom, remember me? You know, I'm your, I'm your son. You know, <laughs> if you've about, if you've forgotten about us too, you know, you're so busy with all the other good things. So the more that we can develop a quality of, of uh, genuine mindfulness, full awareness, and that free of self-view, then the more we can uh, not try to do everything from an idealistic position, but we, it, it brings much more of a pragmatic quality uh, to it. You're coming from the, pra the practicalities of sort of where you are and what you can do rather than what 
you know, what I should be able to do, or what in a perfect world I, 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 I want to do everything. So in a sense, being able to choose one particular area or a couple of areas where you can help doing the best you can in that area and trusting that, yeah, I do care about everything else, but this is the area that I can help with. I've, I've put my emphasis on uh, clearing rubbish from the, from the, the, the sea and uh, so I'll contribute to this project to, to try and uh, empty out the, Pacific gar the, the North Pacific garbage patch the, um, and that uh, I can do that I care about the other things I care about reforestation I care about uh, food resources uh, and the, uh, uh, the lack of snowfall in the Himalayas you know right here these, these bare these bare hills behind the mountains behind us there should be <laughs> should be a lot more snow than there is they're very bereft of snow this year um, so yes I do care and I trust that I care and if someone says, don't you care about this, you say, you can say with great comfort, yeah, I do care, but my field is, is rubbish clearance from the oceans. <laughs> that's my expertise, that's my work, so I'm focusing on that. I do care about the rest, but this is what I can do. And I'm speaking of one who was trying to do everything <laughs> and caring about everything, uh, particularly through my teenage years and, and uh, 20s. I was, that's one of the reasons I was so anxious Kind of all the time <laughs> was uh, trying to feeling I should be able to help everybody and everything and do it all and then not being able to and being anxious that I was never doing enough never really helping enough so over time to trust that you do care but you can't do everything that also helps you to be in tune with <laughs> the family members who are waving to you across the table saying hey hey remember you know we're married you know <laughs> the uh, you remember me? My name is such and such, and that uh, that doesn't—that's not happening because you're you're paying attention to what's close to home as you do the work that you do, and then do the best you can and work with things as they take shape. Because you know, none of us can know what uh, what shape the world will will take. Uh, we just do our best. Uh, the attitude I have with living in a Buddhist monastery, teaching, um, and fulfilling the roles that I do. So, okay, I'm not, uh, I don't have a particular vision of how it's all going to take shape, but I just do my bit and help out as much as I, as much as I can. Could I ask a follow-up question? I meet a lot of Buddhists at home. A lot of them seem to take Buddhism and focus exclusively inwards. Do you think there's a reason why that is? And is there a thing that we can do as Buddhists to guard against that in ourselves and in people around us in our Sangha or whatever? Uh, there's certainly a reason why it happens. <laughs> you know, people pick up Buddhist teachings, Buddhist practices for the, with their own, uh, through their own conditioning, who they've met, the books they've read, the things that have said yes to them, and then they follow that, and they can take all sorts of different directions and still call it Buddhism. Uh, I feel that we we lead by example in the best way. If you're kind of berating your friends, saying you should be like me, you know, then that, of, that often doesn't have a very positive effect. <laughs> Back off, leave me alone. Yeah. Um, and so, if uh, if you have your uh, your own practice and your own faith and how that takes shape in terms of environmental work or, or engagement in various programs and people can see um, 
some people will see, well, um, oh, you know, he's he's doing really good work, and uh, yeah, he seems to also be so well balanced and and clear within himself, and and uh, the the practice is doing him a lot of good. Oh, that's interesting. If they see that you're you're <laughs> full of full of rage and uh, endlessly kind of uh, getting uh, into arguments and and stressful situations, say, well. It's it's he's sincere in his activism, but wow, he's really makes a lot of grief for himself and the people around him. So, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not presuming that you would, but just we we teach by example more than anything, uh, and so that you can't. I would say you can't really presume where people are coming from or, or what their background is. You know, if someone's done sort of fifty retreats with with a particular teacher, or they've been studying under someone's guidance for twenty or thirty years, they're going to be affected by <laughs> that particular take on reality because they've had that faith and that that kind of input. So you can't just sort of unpick that in a moment. But but being confident just in what you do and how you do it and, and Letting that be its own message is uh, often the the best way, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, really, that's that's the whole picture. I would say that it's a um, in a way the Buddha's way is not proselytizing or proclaiming, but just letting uh, those who are interested uh, you know, ask their questions or draw close on their own initiative. So. Here comes the microphone. That uh, which is threatening to the ego is liberating to the heart. I read it in one of your books. If possible, can you elaborate on this? Uh, yeah, the um, there is um, yeah, fear and the ego are directly related. It's not just within the Buddhist perspective. As a, I think it's the. Um, the beginning of the Brihad Aranyika Upanishad, I'm sure there's a few Sanskrit scholars who will correct me, <laughs> but uh, it, a part of the, the beginning of it, uh, it says, uh, very, very roughly paraphrased, it says, uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, or originally, there was the mind of the Absolute filling the infinite void. And then in the mind of the Absolute, there arose the thought, I am. With the arising of the thought, I am, there arose fear. And with fear, there arose desire. That's a very shortened version. <laughs> um, so that, uh, but that is you know, spoken about in kind of cosmic terms. But kind of that's what happens in our minds. As soon as there's an I am, then there's an other. And then this is in danger of what the other might do. And so that that feeling of self doesn't have to be articulated in a thought. I mean, that's the animal instincts. Why, yeah, animals have big ears and, and big eyes to look out for predators and to detect what might be threatening, as well as to to find find food to eat with their with their smell or their eyes, their ears. So that um, that sense of I, even if it's not spelled out as you know, I am this person, even in the animal instincts then as long as there is an, a, a me here, an I, this, this being, then other uh, presents a, a threat. And so even at the most primordial levels of life, like little monocellular creatures, it's like they, they are still driven by these instincts of, uh, can I eat it? Is it going to eat me? <laughs> if it's going to eat me, move away. <laughs> so you can't say that a, 
uh, like a little zooplankton has fear in the same way that we do as a human being, but there is that threat, move away, you know, hide, change color, look like a rock. Yeah. And you know, hope that nasty thing goes away and doesn't eat me. It's interesting that in Buddhist psychology, fear is an agati, it's a bias, but it's not seen as a defilement. So greed, hatred, and delusion are defilements. They're also biases, but fear is a bias, but it's not seen as a defilement. So fear is kind of Mother Nature's protective device. The beings that were not afraid, they were the ones that got eaten. <laughs> so that um, fear is useful. When you, you, you are, you're at the side of the road, fear is what helps us to be attentive because we don't want to get knocked down by the traffic. So fear uh, in itself is not... Uh, a defilement, it's a useful part of nature, but when it's, um, when it's attached to, uh, then, it, um, uh, th then it becomes a, a cause of stress and difficulty within us. And so that um, the, the more that we can recognize fear as uh, like a, a protective psychological state, and not something that is substantially real, then we can know that feeling of fear or that feeling of anxiety as a sensation in the body. And, and years ago when, uh, when I was saying, like Ajahn Sumedha was saying, you're not anxious all the time, you're not afraid all the time, it comes and goes and changes. He was also talking a lot about the physical sensations that go along with any emotion. And so that then with, uh, with fear, if fear is known as a sort of reactive pattern that arises to protect, then if that's known, uh, just, oh, this is the feeling of fear, it's like this, and the tension in the body, then in and of itself it's just a sensation, it's just a, a psychological pattern, that's all. It, it's empty just like everything else is. So that uh, if fear is, is understood and uh, is recognized uh, and seen through, then it's not a burden on the heart. It's not. It's not an obstacle. It's still useful. It still, starts you getting knocked over on the road. <laughs> so it has its place in nature. That's that, that's why we experience it. But the habits of attachment and identification are the problem. So to the uh, the letting go of self view, uh, the ego is. Um, running on those kind of animal instincts of like, this is me, I've got to protect my stuff, and I want to get the good things, I want to get hold of them and keep them, and the bad stuff I need to keep away, and that's dangerous, and, uh, and uh, so, so on and so forth. So the ego um, is trying to protect itself because of that sense of, of independent e existence, and that if the, that ego-centered habit is, is dropped, then to the ego it feels like, oh, I'm vulnerable, oh, you know, things are dangerous, I might be hurt, or I'm going to lose what I've, what I've got. Like, so that those, those five subjects of frequent recollection, it's like, oh, don't say that. I mean, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Don't say that! You know? <laughs> uh, so that when that ego-centered perspective is, is dropped, then there's a recognition of, of course, nothing can really be owned. Uh, the, the body is born, so necessarily it's getting older all the time, and it's going to die one day. That's not news, that's not a surprise. So that 
the causes of that fear are not being fed. So the experience of, of uncertainty or, or change is a quality of wonderment and spaciousness. So in terms of the practice, I was going to get onto this in a day or two's time, one of the, the central parts of Ajahn Chah's teaching was to reflect upon uncertainty, anicca, because uh, we often translate anicca as change or transiency, and it does mean that, it means not, not permanent. Nietzsche means permanent, anicca, not permanent. So in a way, if we talk about anicca as impermanence, it's a quality of the objective realm. So when the heart meets that quality of change, what it feels is uncertain. We don't know what it's going to change into. So on the subjective side, anicca is felt as uncertainty. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, so even though it's most often translated as, as change or impermanence, the felt sense of that impermanence is uncertainty. And so Ajahn Chah would m much more often talk about anicca as that felt sense of mainair, it's not a sure thing and to uh, encourage people to consciously cultivate that. Keep remembering. It's not a sure thing. Not just what your plans are, but also your judgments. Like when you say, this is good, is that a sure thing? This is bad, is that a sure thing? So when that quality of uncertainty is consciously roused, then rather than being th uh, threatening to the ego, it was, it was maybe a little bit threatening to the ego, but because it's being consciously uh, raised up, uh, and given strength, then it's activating the wisdom element that recognizes, of course, yeah, of course, I call this beautiful, but why, why, why should everybody else call it beautiful? How could that be? Uh, of course, I, I say this is ugly, but you know, uh, and naturally, other people have different opinions. I say I'm going to go to uh, to Dharamsala Airport on on uh, the 10th. It's like, well, you might have a plan, but you don't know. <laughs> They, they don't say that. You know, we've got a ticket. They well, yeah, but so what? You know, maybe all the planes are cancelled. Maybe there's a big storm comes in. You know, it's not a sure thing. So when that quality of uncertainty uh, is consciously roused and brought into being, um, then it's uh, it it comes with a, a slightly different flavor. It's like a difference between sending out invitations for people to come to your home or people just showing up out of the blue. Like, you know, if you send out an invitation, there's a different chemistry, there's a different dynamic than when people just show up. Oh, oh okay. Oh, uh, nice to see you. Um, let me tidy the place. <laughs> if you invited people to come, if you invited that, that uncertainty in, then it hasn't just shown up on its own and is sort of throwing things out of balance. It's, it's like, yes, we're, we're, we're setting the intention to recognize this Anicca quality. So can fear be a catalyst for liberation? Uh, if it's uh, handled skillfully, yes. It's like, uh, like that deliberately bringing up the, the quality of uncertainty. Uh, yeah, there's a certain... Yeah, a fear element might come into that, but um, it can reveal uh, your attachments. Like uh, one of Ajahn Chah's um, most often repeated stories is when uh, he was a young monk and in Thailand. Uh, Thai people are often very, very frightened of ghosts, and going into a burning ground in the middle of the night is yeah, very challenging. 
and as, as a young monk, and uh, he wanted he was very very afraid of ghosts, and he wanted to 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 work with that. And he went into a, a, a burning ground. He sat there during the cremation and stayed in the burning ground during the the night. And then he talks about this sort of um, this white hot fear that he experienced. And then when the, the night was over, and there were the villagers came and um, and were, were sort of tidying up the place, and he thought, "Oh, the dawn has come. That's all over. Now I can go." He thought. No, it's not over. You still haven't got, <laughs> you still haven't transcended this. So he decided to stay another night. So if you look in the collected teachings, there's a, a, a talk of his called "In the Dead of Night," that uh, recounts that. And uh, rather like the the Buddha's account of him as a bodhisattva, saying he was experiencing the limit to which pain could go, Ajahn Chah was sitting there in this state of of white hot fear. He was sitting under his mosquito net, close to the this. Um, the, the place where this body had been burned, he could hear these footsteps around him getting closer and closer. And he thought, I'm not going to open my eyes, I'm not going to open my eyes. And he said, in my imagination, there was this kind of half-burnt corpse coming at him. And, and he said, I'm not going to open my eyes. And he said that uh, the fear, it was like he was pouring with sweat, and the, the, the fear was, was white hot. And then he, he got, had this realization, you can't be any more afraid than this. This is, this is like the, the the needle has gone to ten. You know, it's like that. This it doesn't go any higher. This is this is as much fear as you can experience. And then uh, then it suddenly it hit him. He said, "Well, what am I afraid of? Because the the five khandas are not self anyway. So anything that could happen could only happen to the five khandas. So why am I so afraid?" And suddenly the whole thing shifted, and he went from this this pouring. Hello. Yeah, it's time for a break. Right, I agree. So, the uh, rather than so sort of this white hot fear in his body running with with sweat, kind of bullet bullet sized drops of sweat pouring down his face and all over him. Suddenly, he went into this this kind of blissful clarity, and he just you know sat there in in this sort of this kind of very clear, bright state of mind all the way through till till dawn. Then he was ready to go. As a footnote on fear, I just remembered um, in that same book, uh, Roots and Currents, there's another article of mine that's called The Body of Truth and the Body of Fear. And it talks about that whole area. So these are, these are all available online as well as uh, print copies. But uh, if you look on the Amravati website... Yeah. So the book's root, Roots and Currents and the, the essay is The Body of Truth and the Body of Fear. It was a chapter from a, a book on Buddhism and uh, Hatha Yoga. So that's a good point to pause for a break. <laughs>